0: wives're speaking with deceit. Let's go And we got crooked politicians crooked as a question mark, our yep. And we got people in positions: teaching all our kids. During the last broadcast, as I was talking about a survival scenario, a scenario that a friend encountered with his family, I was talking about being prepared in any given situation. And then my phone began to ring, and the texts began to blow up my phone. I want you to think about what I'm going to share with you during this broadcast tonight. Everybody knew that I was on the air live, but my friend, even though she knew I was live, she needed to talk to me. She needed to talk to me now. I knew it was an emergency because she kept blowing out my phone. So in between pauses of what I was conveying during the broadcast, I would mute the microphone and then I would try to read her texts. Then one of them read, call me bringing in thermal imaging and canine. I would unmute the microphone to say a few more words. And now trying to concentrate on what I need to convey in my point of the broadcast scenario. When the phone rings again, I turn off the ringer. And then another text read, police cars are everywhere. To illustrate how my mind can play tricks on a person, my mind began to play different scenarios of full battle rattle soldiers and police surrounding my home. Because I was live broadcasting survival techniques. As if the situation was all about me. Talk about selfish and vain. I say a few more things while I'm on the air into the microphone. And then I mute it so that I can radio the on-duty security and alert them of a possible situation. Then I'm back on the air to talk to y'all. I say a few more things about my friend's scenario and I mute the microphone to read another text as I can hear the security preparing their gear. The text reads, Police all over the neighborhood. At least eight police cars. Police all over the hillside with flashlights. Bad guy on the loose headed your way. Okay. (laughs) It's now time to end the broadcast way early. I unmute the microphone to say a few more things as I text my producer, Angel, to inform him that there's an emergency. I abruptly end the broadcast, which I do apologize for. There are bad guys out there. And I call my neighbor to see what's going on. I did keep Angel on on the Skype line so that he could hear what was going on just in case something went down up here and we find ourselves in a very nasty situation angel could have the incident recorded so thank you angel welcome (laughs) the neighbor answered my call and i placed him on speaker he seemed to be relieved that we were all all right up here he hurriedly explained that there were at least 30 police cars down the hill and there was a bad guy on the loose he explained some of the details as he knew them and that the bad guy could be on his way up the hill to Ranch 2.0. If that were the case, the bad guy was about to have a very bad night. This is why we train people. This is why we set up rotation of security around the property. This was the perfect opportunity to learn from the stresses of a real life scenario that was not simulated. Within an hour and a half in these mountains and in the hauler, the bad guy was caught placed into custody with the police and then there are those out there who wanted to fund the police had there been no police the bad guy would have got away unless he actually did make it up here and then i can guarantee you he would not have made it anything can happen at any time we were prepared And ready for action within seconds, because we train. What about you? Can you be ready for any given scenario within seconds? But then you say, but Kate, you're being unrealistic. Am I? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Around the Campfire with Kate, where surviving, thriving, and staying alive is essential. Thanks to Angel, I have a website now and an email so you can listen to my live shows and all of the past shows with ease by going to Around the Campfire with Kate. Blogspot.com. And if you want to contact me to ask questions or give me some ideas for the show, you can email me at Around the Campfire with Kate at Gmail.com. This is a live call-in show, so if you want to talk to me, you know, you want to make a statement or just give your opinion, you can call by going to Skype through Public Service Network. Tonight, I will be recapping what I was talking about in the survival situation in the previous broadcast when the interruption of a bad guy happened in my situation. For the rest of the hour, I am going to talk about material taken from IWillMakeYouHardToKill.com. We're going to hit violence, prevention, and response. Semper Paratus means always ready. The weather was cool, but it was a nice evening for dinner downtown with his wife and daughter. Chris parked his truck in the adjoining parking lot as the girls jumped out and headed toward the restaurant to get their seat. He threw on his coat, "'locked up the car and turned to catch up with the girls "'already approaching the door of the restaurant. "'This night was like any other night, "'and they looked forward to a good meal "'from a place they'd been to countless times. "'Chris's hands were in his pockets "'when he glanced at his watch to check the time, "'then looked up to notice a young man in his late 20s "'cut him off on the sidewalk. "'The man was immediately irate "'and he was yelling in Chris's face, What the fuck, bro? You got a problem? Chris was thrown off, but quickly noticed the other two guys approaching their hostile cohort. The verbal assault continued as Chris slowly backed away while attempting to use his body language and words to de-escalate the situation. Nothing he could say seemed to detour the trio, and tensions built when one of them put his hand in his jacket and asked Chris, if he wanted to get shot and die. What this guy did not know is Chris is an avid shooter who carries religiously and that his 380 was already trained on him from the concealment of his jacket pocket. He had his hand on the weapon the instant the first guy got in his face. Now the gun was drawn from the sticky holster. His finger was on the trigger and ready to go without even the need to draw it from his pocket. The guy slowly pulled his hand out with his finger and thumb extended like a gun. In that instant of the slow draw, Chris's mind raced between engaging the possible threat and restraint. He didn't want to shoot the guy. But was this guy really going to pull a gun on him? There was no way to know what was coming out of that guy's coat pocket. The thug pointed his fingered, elevated thumb at Chris and said, Bang, then laughed. Choosing not to shoot and feeling relieved at seeing no weapon, Chris said, You almost made a huge mistake. This reignited their rage, to which one of them stated, Why, you got a gun, bitch? I'll take that shit from you right now. While sidestepping the group, Chris replied, You don't need to worry about what I've got. As their heads turned to follow his movement, they picked up on Chris's wife, only 30 feet away, who had already had her gun out of her purse and leveled on the group of thugs. And as a side note, Chris's daughter carries as well. Chris joined the ladies and instructed his wife to put the weapon away. They entered the restaurant, called the police to report the incident, and enjoyed their dinner while waiting for the officers to arrive and take their statements. Chris told this account to me one morning at work. He's an easygoing man in his mid-fifties who never puts himself in any dangerous situations until that day. And he never had an incident where he nearly pulled the trigger on someone. It shook him up quite a bit. And it unsettled me when he told it. It could have easily been me and my friends there that night instead. Or it could have been you. Chris was ready to react. His wife and his daughter were ready. In this same scenario, would you be ready? Carrying concealed is one of the best forms of protection, but not everyone has that option of carrying concealed. Maybe you're limited by the state where you reside, a country you're traveling to, or even your financial situation. The focus here is that there are other options to mitigate threats and deal with hostiles. Situational awareness. Bad guys will often broadcast pre-attack cues that you can pick up on, but only if you've got your head on a swivel and are tuned into your environment And not your cell phone. What kind of neighborhood are you in? Is it dark? What are the bad guys concealment options and ambush positions in the space that you're in? What are your escape routes if you get in trouble? When you are assessing the people in your area, are they lurking? What is their purpose for being there? Are they dressed appropriately for the setting? Do they have anything in their hands? Is their face or head obscured in any way? Is their behavior appropriate? Are they staring you down or are they casting subtle glances in your direction? For more information on this type of thing, check out the book, The Gift of Fear by Gavin Becker. And there's Strength in Numbers. In Chris's scenario, his wife and daughter were about 30 feet ahead of him. Had they been walking together, would the confrontation still occur? Maybe, but predators tend to target individuals and not groups. They want an easy kill. Positioning is also a factor in groups, especially when there's children involved or other non-combatants like the elderly. The stronger defenders need to be closer to the anticipated threat, such as placing your children between the parents or the elderly between the children or the grandchildren that are taking them out. And you need to be a hard target. Projecting anger can throw off a potential predator. If Chris had detected the danger beforehand, what would the bad guys think? If he had his phone up to his ear and yelled into it, what the hell do you want? I told you to stop jerking me around and so on. Maybe even acting dramatically. Dramatically pissed. Without the phone. Throwing his arms up in the air and cursing under his breath as he storms by. They want that easy kill, remember? Obviously, this may not work in all cases, But it could have detoured the three douchebags that were trying to out-macho each other. I would not want to deal with an angry man. He's already got anger issues and he's going to want to take it out on somebody. And then there's fitness. If you spend much time in this broadcast, you'll see a common theme often repeated. There is no substitute for physical and mental fitness. It is a force multiplier that gives you so many options for defense. If you've ever been in a fight, you know that it's nothing like the movies. It's messy. You don't know what's coming next. Lots of improvising is required, and help is not necessarily just around the corner. Fitness can mean the difference between life and death. When you control the distance in a dangerous scenario, your odds of survival increased exponentially. At the first sign of trouble, could Chris sprint past the first guy to the restaurant door? Or after realizing he was outnumbered and in their range yelled, Look out! while pointing behind them, then bolting the instant their attention was diverted. If you train regularly and know your capabilities, you'll be more able and willing to use dynamic motion to your advantage. Fitness also would have paid huge dividends if Chris were assaulted by the trio. He could better avoid going to the ground against multiple combatants, and if he found himself there, fitness would help him get up and get moving. Fit people are harder to kill. It's just that simple. Avoidance techniques aren't always successful. So what what made the difference in Chris's scenario? And what if it had played out differently? Chris had an awesome tactical advantage using the sticky holster with his gun in his pocket. Acquiring the firearm, drawing and aiming serendipitously did not alert the offenders and protected the element of surprise, which is a key benefit to winning engagements. One could argue that if he drew the pistol from his pocket, the bad guys would have immediately fled. One could also counter-argue that it could have been a catalyst for them to try and stab, ambush, or disarm him, then use his own weapon against him. Keep in mind that these guys were only a few feet away. Besides, a wild card, literally, in your pocket gives a feeling of great comfort, and just imagine the bad guys' surprise if Chris had chosen to engage them. The rounds would have been easily penetrated his jacket, and with such close proximity, it would not have been hard to connect with the target. If you're carrying a weapon, make sure a round is chambered, and practice drawing frequently. Do not expect to have the time or even remember to chamber a round in the heat of the moment. Chris certainly wouldn't have had been able to charge the weapon without alerting the thugs and losing the element of surprise. What if the guy that reached into his coat had pulled out a weapon? If he felt that his life was in danger and a weapon was presented, he should disable the threat. The nice thing about Chris's circumstances was that his draw was concealed by the pocket. Had he been carrying in another manner like an appendix? He would have had to wait for an opportunity to draw his weapon when the threat's attention was diverted. Don't draw on a gun that's already out when the bad guy's attention is on you. Wait for your turn to launch a counter ambush. If you don't already have a concealed carry permit, get one and always carry your gun. If you already have one, Consider a sticky holster as a reliable option to give you the tactical edge. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. It may not seem as manly, but avoiding the fight or running away is usually your best option to stay alive. Practice using the tips that I've just given you the next time you're out on a date night or in a populated area. Learn to be a people watcher. It'll sharpen your skills. And usually makes some. Seriously. It may be too late. Like the homeowners who. Do not get an alarm system until after their house is burglarized or. The parents who had no first aid skills when their child was blue and choking or. The men that finally decided to get his concealed carrier permit after being mugged at knife point. Get the tools. Before you need them. When tragedy strikes. You have to be ready. You may not have a second chance. So let's talk about cold, wet hands and drying your gloves on the fly. It's not always convenient to wear bulky winter gloves with a Gore-Tex shell since most of the work people do with their hands involve more complex motor skills. If you're wearing white, lightweight gloves, they're probably not waterproof. And that means that they're going to get wet and your hands are going to get cold. One trick that most of us at Seer specialists use is drying gloves in the belt line. I carry two pair, wearing one set while drying the other, which allows for continuously warm dry hands. I use the government issue wool glove inserts for this method. You can find these online for about Five bucks, or at any army, navy, or military surplus store, you can also use this technique with other lightweight gloves that are made of materials that dry fairly quickly. So here's what I do: place the gloves inside my pants at the belt line, palms and fingers inside, around the front of the pelvis. The wool inserts ride more evenly as they have a longer cuff than most gloves, which allows them to balance easier and prevents the gloves from working their way inside and getting lost in your pant leg. As I go about my work, my core body heat slowly dries these gloves out as they are pressed to my pelvic area by my belt and the waist of my pants. If you wear cotton underwear, you might want to reconsider this technique or better yet switch to a quick drying underwear type fabric. Cotton takes forever to dry out and will wick away from your body 25 times faster. It'll wick away the heat when they're wet. After the pair of gloves on my hands become wet, the gloves on my waistline are usually dry and ready to go. So you continue to rotate them throughout the day and your hands stay warm, dry, and operational. Test it for yourself. Give it a try the next time you're wearing gloves and wet conditions and you'll see how a $10 investment and a little knowledge can be the difference in cold or frostbitten fingers. Let's talk about estimating the sun going down with your fingers. It's getting dark. Daylight has a powerful effect on the rhythms of your body. We schedule our lives around the rising and the setting of the sun, with the exception of hunting season. Most of us probably do not focus on the times for sunrise and sunset. It happens within our influence every single day. We've all been in the position of having certain things to accomplish before it gets dark. Outside in the woods, this is especially true. For a backpacker on the trail, sundown means that you should already have your campsite picked out and your tent erected. If you've ever ever entered a new location after dark, then you know what it's like to wake up to a foreign environment. Your surroundings transform with the rising sun. It's better to scout the location and get yourself squared away before it gets dark. In SEER, which means survival, evasion, resistance, and escape training, we teach our students to build their shelter and gather their firewood prior to sundown. Life gets substantially harder when the darkness creeps in. One reliable way to estimate sundown involves a highly specialized piece of equipment your hand. With an extended arm, your palm facing you, and your fingers parallel to the ground, you can approximate the time left until sundown. Focus your eyes on your extended hand, and squinting does help. Place the edge of your fingers in line with the edge of the sun. Each finger represents 15 minutes. The number of fingers that fill the gap between the bottom edge of the sun and the Earth's horizon multiplied by 15 will give you the amount of time left until the sun slips below the surface. You have to use two hands if necessary for distances greater than four fingers, which is an hour. And keep in mind, You'll have about 30 minutes of decent twilight after the sun is down to finalize anything needed to be completing your work before it gets dark. Knowing the amount of available daylight gives you the ability to set and accomplish priorities that are tremendously more difficult, if not impossible, after dark. Daylight is a powerful metaphor for life where darkness represents death, where intentional or subconscious. There are things that we want to see realized before the sun sets on our lives. Unfortunately, we have no way of knowing how much time we have left. But we do know that we have things in our lives that take precedence. It could be your career, your possession your relationships, your position or your status. It's easy to get caught up in the present moment and lose track of what your true priorities are. Often, a man's priority is his job since many find their identity in their careers. When two guys meet for the first time, one of the lead questions is usually, what do you do for a living? Career Identity is a slippery slope with respect to work-life balance. Men tell themselves, I'm doing this for my family. But in many cases, they are doing it at the expense of their family. Now don't get me wrong. The point here is not to pick apart your decisions. And I'm not talking about responsibility either. Men are constantly bombarded with the world's agendas on what they should be doing as men. The challenge here is to focus on intentionality and relationship. The daylight in our lives is a finite resource. It's super important to take the time to rack and stack your priorities before the sun goes down on your life. One of the techniques I use to stay on top of this is lists. I have lists for almost everything, including my priorities. These are transcribed to my prayer list, which is something that I go over every morning before I start my day. This technique keeps me focused on what's important, and I begin my day with that reference point. The flip side of priorities is not getting target locked Life is extremely dynamic, so stay in tune with your environment and ask yourself what you need to focus on before the sun sets on your day. Does your wife or your spouse need attention? Do your kids need some quality time with dad or mom? Are there friends or family that need you to touch base with them? It's easy to miss the forest for the trees. Time. Is one of the greatest gifts that we can give to our families, to our friends, and to ourselves. We could never be fully present if we are constantly reacting to pop up targets and in a helmet fire state of emergency. Find your priorities, and you will find a much more intentional version of yourself. How to make Bone-dry tinder, even in a downpour. The problem? Cold and wet. So what you do when you're out in a torrential rain, or what do you do when you're out in a torrential rain, with no man-made tinder on you, and you need to get a fire going, everything is soaking wet, and finding dry tinder is really challenging. I'm going to show you how to make your own tinder using heartwood scrapings. First, locate some deadwood. The dead limbs attached to the lower part of a tree underneath the live branches are known as squaw wood. This is one of the easiest materials to use for creating dry tinder, as these branches are somewhat protected from the precipitation by the live branches above them. You'll need to get the inside of the squaw wood where the wood is still bone dry. Thumb-sized diameter is the smallest material you'll be able to successfully use. If you can find bigger diameter branches and open them up, that's even better. But sometimes you can find protected deadwood in downed logs or old stumps, but make sure it's not rotten. Opening up the dead branches involves a specific technique that varies according to the diameter of the material. There's the beater stick method and the throttle push method. Once you've got your heartwood exposed, you'll need to pick a flat-faced piece that's about two feet long. Wedge it between the ground and your belt line so it's firmly braced. Now hold your knife at a 90-degree angle to the flat face, grabbing the handle with one hand and the spine of the blade with the other. Push down with your hand and into the wood so the knife pulls paper-thin scrapings off of the face of the drywood. Keep your runs runs long and smooth with even pressure on the knife. Only scrape in a downward motion, letting gravity work with you. It takes some practice to get the feel for it, but once you find that sweet spot, keep drawing off scrapings until you have at least a football, football size. More is even better. If you use this technique with flatwood, that which is wood that is heavily infused with pitch, your t- even more punch. And there are two key points here. One, your tinder should be the last thing that you prepare before lighting your fire. You have the rest of your preps, your kindling and your larger wood ready to go. Why? Because tinder is the easiest fuel to, in stages to absorb moisture and is the key to getting your fire going. Number two, If you're making tinder, in any sort of precipitation, you'll need to protect your tinder as you go. Keep it off the ground, because the ground is moist too. And position your body over the scrapings as you make them. Even better, if you have a bag or a poncho to shelter the tinder as it's produced. Feather sticks can also help your fire transition from the tinder stage to the kindling stage, but we'll cover How to make those at another time. Right now, this is enough for you to practice. Try it the next time you go camping. Or even bring some squaw wood home to practice in your own backyard. Then teach your kids how. They will love it. How to build an escape kit. We all want to be dangerous, crafty, and skilled. Well, if you're serious about being hard to kill, you need to know How to carry and use an escape kit for defeating restraints. The United States has its fair share of kidnappings, hostage takings, and human trafficking these days. In fact, the Polaris Project, which is a nonprofit working organization that helps prevent human trafficking, has reported that there was a 40% increase in trafficking since the election last year. There are a wide variety of outcomes with these crimes, but even the victims that do make it out alive are likely to suffer from PTSD, anxiety, and other mental disorders. And that's probably enough evidence alone to convince a person to learn the skills of escape. But there's an added benefit to this kind of training. Problem solving, confidence building, and technical ability are a few reasons that come to mind. And I think it's safe to say that our society could stand to have some more resilience built in. Victim mentality runs rampant these days. And that's all the more reason to combat this plague with a warrior ethos. Now with that in mind, am I suggesting we all carry an escape kit on us at all times? No. But I believe you should have a basic understanding of how restraints work, what items can be used to defeat them, what should go in an an escape kit, and how to carry it if you're going to be in a high-risk environment. I made sure I had my kit on me when working in Central America where hostage-taking is a daily part of life. YouTube has several quality videos that show how common restraints work and what can be used to defeat them. I signed a non disclosure agreement with Uncle Sam years ago, so I can't ta- talk about tactics, techniques, and procedures, but I can point you toward a few videos that can give you a solid baseline. For reference, the restraints I'm going to focus on are tape, rope, zip ties, and handcuffs. What should you carry? This varies based on what kind of activity you're doing and what clothing you'll be wearing, but here are some nuts and bolts of what's essential. A razor blade for cutting rope and zip ties. Synthetic handcuff key, which is smaller and lighter than a traditional key. Bobby pins for picking and shimming handcuffs and zip ties. Kevlar, 8-foot length. Friction saw, which can be used as friction sawing through rope or zip ties. A diamond file, which saws through metal restraints hands down the best place to buy this stuff is at Seerpick pick s-e-r-e pick p-i-c-k i have no affiliation with them but i've used their tools a lot and they are very high quality so how to carry it well that's what pockets are for right well no If you're kidnapped or taken hostage, just count on the bad guy going through your pockets and confiscating everything they find. If they find a handcuff key in your pocket, you may get some special treatment, like a nice beatdown, more robust restraints, and a guard to constantly keep an eye on you. Also, your clothing could be taken from you, so think about layers of escape kits. Maybe a large Band-Aid taped to your hip. That has a razor blade or a handcuff key stashed in it. One important consideration when hiding a kit is that it needs to be accessible whether your hands are restrained in the front of you or in the back of you. The sides of your waist are going to be the most easily accessible. There are a lot of products on the market for hiding equipment in everyday items like belts and with zippered pockets and velcro patches with hidden voids. I wore running shorts as underwear, and I keep one escape kit in the little inside pocket that normally is used for carrying a a car key or a house key. They make some great shorts nowadays that have a hidden cell phone pocket that you can wear under your pants to carry your kit in. I swapped my boot laces for Kevlar laces and also carried some kevlar line in my kit in case my boots were taken another trick i used was hollowing out a chapstick tube and loading it with bobby pins a mini diamond file and a handcuff key it's a low cost item that's easy to throw in a pocket and there's a good chance of retaining it due to its low value if they don't take your pants of course I've also seen guys cut slits in the tongue of their boots, waistbands of their pants, and on the lining of hats. You can get really imaginative here here, and find tons of places to hide your equipment. So, let's get started. Everyone usually has duct tape in their house, so let's start there. Go ahead. I'll wait. Go grab some duct tape. Review the videos that I will be listing. Try it out for yourself. Then have your spouse try. By this point, your kids will be begging to try. This is actually a great activity to do with your children. Once they have the baseline knowledge of defeating restraints, they'll be hooked. Kids love performing, and it's incredibly beneficial for adults to learn This is more fun than Netflix or scrolling through endless garbage on social media. You can probably find some kind of old rope or cordage around the house, too. Practice binding each other's hands and feet and see how easy it is to wiggle free. Then start timing each other. Once you see how much fun it is, check out some of the links that I'm going to be telling you about after this segment and order some escape items. Head down to the hardware store and get a few different kinds of zip ties. Once you get to the handcuffs, it gets a little more technical. But this handcuff cutaway helps you understand what's going on inside the cuff when trying to pick or shim your way out of it. Simply watching the videos will not make you better. You have to take action if you want to be part of the 1%. These are hands-on skills, and you have to practice them because they are also perishable skills. This can be the catalyst to breaking the old routine and doing something fun and useful as a family, so it's up to you. You can find some great YouTube videos defeating restraints, like John Lovell from War Poet Society and the SEAL Team 6 member Clint Emerson and his books 101 Deadly Skills for Home, Wilderness, and Combat that I discussed on my last broadcast. So go ahead and YouTube search War Poets Society and Clint Emerson. Learn everything that you can from them and practice. Now here's a quick tip for wood splitting. I spent a lot of time splitting wood. Picking up the splits and repositioning them on the chopping block and a gigantic waste of time, not to mention a pain in the back. I cannot take credit for inventing this, but I'm sharing it here because I think it's awesome and it's made me way more efficient when splitting wood. So here's how it works get a few tires that have an inside diameter that's a little bit larger than the biggest round that you split. If your chopping block is huge, place the tire on top. Otherwise, just ring your chopping block with a couple of tires until you have the height you need to securely hold the rounds as you chop. Place your round or a couple, three smaller rounds in and chop away. The pros to this is it's a safer way to chop. And rubber protects your shoes, your toes, and your shins. Tires are free. And this literally costs you nothing. And it makes kindling super fast. The cons on this, tires are ugly and have a junkyard vibe that detracts from the vintage look of a manly wood processing area. So grab a tire and give this a try next time you're chopping wood. Your back will thank you. And dads understand the role of provider, but have a way of getting caught up in the task. We know we need to take care of our kids, so we dive headlong into our jobs, where it often becomes our identity. And that defines us. As said previously, when guys first meet, one of the leading questions is, what do you do for a living? With the best intentions, but a twist of irony. Some men even lose their families to the false adventure of a career. Our preoccupation with work distracts to the fact that the needs of our families extend beyond the basic of food, water, and shelter. Check out Luke 11, 11 through 13 in the Holy Scriptures. It says, ask for what you need. This is not a cat-and-mouse hide-and-seek game we're in. If your little boy asks for a serving of fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? If your little girl asks for an egg, do you trick her with a spider? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing with your children. You're at least decent to your own children. And don't think that the father who conceived you in love will give the Holy Spirit when you ask. This is the Amplified Version. The last line is interesting. God addresses our physical needs, but more than that, he addresses the greater need for him by giving us complete access to the deepest part of him, the Holy Spirit. If we pattern our lives after Christ, we need to do what he does for us to give ourselves to our kids. It's important to understand that our children don't always need the right answer or the the perfect solution. What they need is us. Half of being a dad means just showing up and being available. A great place to start this with your kids is by getting them outside. I grew up spending a lot of time with my brother Jeff outdoors, and it changed my life. That blueprint is one that I continue to follow with my students. There is something primal about sitting around a fire with them, something mysterious about the dark woods, and something eternal about staring up at the stars. Unfortunately, many men were never exposed to the logistics of camping, So it seems overwhelming to them and their kids never get to experience the magnitude of God's wild places. So how does a guy get started with this new adventure? Roger Thompson. His simple website has a great layout to get you started sharing the camping experience with your children. There's several free downloads that show you where to go and how to do it. And I highly recommend the Father and the Child Summer Adventure Guide. One of his ideas that rarely struck a chord with me was his view on the time that you spend with your kids. We only have 18 summers with our kids. The rest of our lives will be spent either celebrating what we did with them or regretting what we didn't. The good news is that it does not take much to make a lasting memory for you and your children. So check out his website and get started this summer. Your first attempt might not be a great success, but it's often the disasters that we pull together and overcome that we remember the most. Time is our most finite resource. You better make it count. Do not let the TV dictate how you spend your time this summer. And speaking of time, Pass up the next opportunity for overtime and take your kids out camping instead. The wild places are a catalyst to start a dialogue with our children, and it'll last a lifetime. Now let's hit some exits. Get out alive. Open your eyes. Escape is one of those skills we usually do not think about until it's too late. Most of us walk into buildings assuming that you're going to leave the same way you came in. It's easy to become complacent with the day-to-day routines because emergencies rarely happen, right? So keep in mind, familiarity breeds contempt. And being hard to kill is a process of conditioning, not only for your body for stress, but your mind as well. And don't get me wrong. This is not a call to live your life, the rest of your life, in paranoia, constantly looking over your shoulder. This is about opening your eyes, taking note of what's going on around you, and being actively engaged in your environment. The motivating factor here is that you do not get backed into a corner with no idea where to go if an emergency does arise. I'm going to take this opportunity to jump on my soapbox for a minute and address one of the major obstacles to situational awareness in today's society. Cell phones. These can be a fantastic tool for maintaining good calms with family members, summoning emergency responders, tracking extreme weather patterns in your area, following breaking news, and a host of other things. The double edge of this sword is that people have their heads buried in them and often ignore their immediate environment. And I'm sure you've seen this acted out in public by oblivious parents and the chaos of kids that accompany them or the people who literally walk around with their faces in their phones. You've got to be switched on in order to process your environment. And my recommendation would be to prioritize your needs and find a balance with your phone. Phone business can usually wait until more opportune times. It wasn't that long ago that we lived just fine without these things. My last rant on the topic is that it seems that a huge driver for phone use is boredom. So what's more constructive for the use of your time? So let's play the what-if game. An interesting way to process your environment in different ways is to play the what-if game. Limited only by your imagination, this sets you up with some possible responses to potential scenarios in your environment. For example, if I'm out to dinner with my friends, I can ask myself, what if someone comes in the front door shooting? Where's the nearest cover? Which exits in the building? Are my best options? Can I effectively return fire from where I'm at or do I need to relocate to a different part of the room? Where would the shooter likely take cover and where could I flank him? An extension of this game is a reconnaissance walk where most of your intel is gained at the facility's layout. There's several ways to accomplish this, but one of the most natural is taking a trip to the bathroom. For example, when we go out to eat and I'm finished looking over the menu, I'll make a bathroom run. Even if only to wash my hands while I'm in there, the trip allows me the chance to look over the place. I can identify alternate exits, maybe peek through the kitchen and find the exit back there. Never rule out the possibility of creating your own exit by throwing a chair through a window if necessary. On the way back from the bathroom, I can take an alternate route back to my table and look over any other areas of the building for strengths or vulnerabilities like cover, funnels, dead ends. While I'm on my walk, I'll size up the crowd and get an idea of potential threats or allies If an emergency does occur, in the unfortunate event that you find yourself at a mall, the directory, which is located at most major entrances, gives a quick overview of the facility layout so exits can be established. What the directory does not tell you is that there are often plenty of corridors with some type of employee-only markings that can be used in an emergency. These areas are typically used for janitorial staff, service, or delivery personnel and mall employees. Some of these passageways are accessible from inside the rear of the shops. If I go to the movies, I like to arrive early to get a good seat and make a bathroom run for reasons discussed previously. We like to sit in the very back of the theater, and in some cases, there's an exit leading to the lobby that allows us to avoid the bottleneck after the movie's over. Once you've got the layout established, it's time to consider your positioning. So when possible, I like to sit facing the primary entrance, ideally with my back to the wall, so I can see who's coming and going. If you're in a booth at a restaurant, put the children on the inside seat for two reasons. For the parenting aspect, I feel like the children are more contained and you can control their access to the rest of the restaurant. And secondly, you can get an inside aisle quickly and deal with any possible scenario that could pop up. If you're going to a familiar restaurant, ask for a certain table that works for you. And at the new restaurants, if you're seated in a bad location, ask for a different table. This is easier to accomplish if you offset your dining times to avoid the larger crowds during common lunch and dinner hours. The absence of crowds is great for a number of other reasons, like less noise, less stress, quicker food, and reduced traffic. Yes, yeah, Speaking of traffic, your family awareness and positioning while driving go a long way protecting you and your family. Your vehicle is an extension of your mobility, and most of your exits are created by how you set yourself up while operating a vehicle. When you come to a stop behind a vehicle, do you pull up right behind them? Or do you leave yourself enough room to quickly pull around them if the need is required? The what-if game can expand to driving scenarios as well. What if the guy next to me swerves into my lane? Do I have an exit on the shoulder or do I need to take, do I need to brake and make room? When leaving your vehicle, give some thought to where and how you park your vehicle as well. At larger events or in other congested areas, Parking on the outskirts of the lot or an adjoining lot can provide a quicker escape when the lot overflows, when the event lets out. You may end up walking a little bit further to get to and from your car, but in bumper-to-bumper bumper traffic, the flexibility of being on foot is a staggering advantage. When parking, take note of where the street lights and any security cameras are and park nearby. Not only does this help deter thieves, but security will have an easier time identifying the bad guys that may do you or your vehicle harm. Back the car or rally parking is in your spot. Improves the efficiency of getting out quicker, not to mention saving you the headache of costs of backing into someone in the change if the changing environment becomes harsh. It pays to think outside the box. So while driving, be cognizant of what is navigable in your terrain. In an emergency, everyday objects like curbs and yards and medians, cheap fences, and the like are negotiable barriers and provide a host of other exit possibilities. There may be some damage to your car, but when compared to the nature of the emergency, it may be a viable cost to the benefit gained. There is a clear tactical advantage gained when you have a fresh perspective on the environments around you and what effect you could have on them. Situational awareness comes easy for some folks, but for others, it takes some serious effort. So practice. Make it a habit before you look down at your phone. Look around and take stock of your surroundings. Move around and be inquisitive, whether you're driving, fighting in a facility, or just on your phone, avoid getting boxed in. Exits are your ticket out alive, so keep your eyes open, your head on a swivel, and you'll be even harder to kill. The sky is falling. I recently witnessed a fervent debate between a few co-workers on the conspiracies behind the UN Agenda 21 FEMA death camps, George Soros' plan to take over the world, and the connections to the end times. These co-workers are guys I trust. We've been through the same trainings. We have similar backgrounds and personality types. One made the case that self-driving cars are just a way to control the population's free movement so that we can eventually be easily funneled to the places that the one world government has in mind for us. Another laid out Biden's plan to collapse the economy and retain all power when he declares martial law prior to the next election. It was a lot to take in. I sat quietly and listened to the myriad of ways that would ultimately lead to the downfall of our society and my eventual demise. At one point during the lull in the debate, they asked me what my thoughts were on the crisis at hand. I'm of the opinion that hanging out in the crisis phase is unproductive, so I put the question back to them. That sounds terrible. What are you going to do about it? Well, always be ready. The short answer is to keep doing what we should be doing regardless of the latest headlines. Train our bodies, keep our skills sharp, learn something new, teach it to our children, spend time with our friends, and make ourselves just a little bit better than we were yesterday. So let's assume that the sky is falling and one of the scenarios above is playing out. In that case, all of the workouts have made me fit and more able to handle anyone trying to harm me. Going shooting has made me more proficient with weapons to deal with hordes of rioters. The food I have stored will cushion the blow once the initial panic sets in and the supermarket shelves are barren. The medical training has prepared me for medical emergencies when advanced care is delayed or non-existent. The tangible investments I've made in camping equipment pays off if we are to quickly relocate. In short, We're more more likely to survive the ordeal versus the family next door that's regularly hypnotized by the flat screen television or overweight and only plans for Saturday nights. But maybe the newsreels got it wrong. And Y2K didn't crash all the computers and send us back to the Stone Age. Were we wrong to live our lives this way? Well, all those workouts still made you fit and go a long way towards extending the length and quality of your life. No regrets there. Going shooting and teaching your kids and spouse about guns just enforced our family values and allowed us to spend quality time together doing something meaningful. The food stored in the basement was a waste, right? Well, not if what we stored we regularly eat and can rotate the stock. Not to mention when the windstorms knocked out our power for two weeks last winter and everyone wiped out the supermarket while playing board games by lantern light. We played board games by lantern light and slept like babies. The first responder course can come in handy when you witness a car crash and you can help the injured until the paramedics arrive. The camping equipment gets you used regularly every year when you can get out into the woods as a family, away from the iPads and the internet and actually talk to each other like humans used to. Whether it's a full-on societal collapse or just a hiccup in your everyday life, your individual and, and group, your family training has invaluable benefits that bridge the gap. If you choose to live like a turd now, you'll be a turd when the chips are down, at least until you die off. The path to being a really useful human is one we walk daily. These skills translate to almost every other area of our lives there's something that we can pass on to our kids while simultaneously building trust and meaningful lasting relationships with them that they will never regret don't know where to start well buy a gun and take a class with your spouse go camping with your children write down what you would do differently next trip take a cpr class with your family the local fire department check out a book on food storage from the library and start buying a little extra every trip you go to the market. Your spouse and your kids need you to be switched on and they're dying to spend quality time with you. This can be the catalyst. So make it happen. If you have ideas on what you would like for me to talk about on my show, feel free to send me an email at aroundthecampfirewithkate at gmail.com. It is my hope that I'm helpful in getting you prepared for the days to come. This ends the broadcast for me tonight. Train hard. Train smart to survive thrive and stay alive. This is Kate signing off until next time.